listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tracy. In the 1990s, there was a promising up-and-coming journalist. His name was Stephen Glass. I don't think this is too well-known of a story. Has anyone heard of Stephen Glass? I don't see any hands. As a young man, Stephen Glass wrote articles on staff for New Republic magazine. He also occasionally wrote articles for other publications like Harper's and Rolling Stone. And very early on, his bosses and editors knew that they had something special on their hands. His writing was clever and engaging. The people and events that he was covering were larger than life stories, almost unbelievable stories. And the readers were just captivated by his articles. Stephen Glass had a very bright future ahead of him. Until one day, (laughs) until one day when someone started looking into some strange details in one of his articles, that didn't seem to quite line up with the facts. The dream job quickly unraveled as it was discovered that the events of this article were fabricated, completely made up by Stephen Glass. And this wasn't the first time that he had done this. Even his coworkers had been fooled because over the years for this and other articles, Stephen Glass had gone so far as to also fabricate evidence, eyewitness statements, interview notes from interviews that never actually happened, and even business cards for alleged sources. The level of deception was so intricate that even the magazine's own fact checkers never picked up on this. Understandably, Stephen Glass was fired immediately after that first article was exposed, and in the years since, it's been confirmed that of the 41 articles he wrote for New Republic, at least 36 of them contained either fake or embellished details or were made up entirely. In the years since, unable to get another job in publishing, he's tried to start a new career as a lawyer. True story. No one ever denied he was a very smart, talented individual. He earned a JD degree, graduated magna cum laude, and passed the bar rather easily. But even though he passed the test, during his final review, the bar examination committee had some concerns about the lying and deception in his past. As a result, based on moral grounds, he has been denied a license to practice law multiple times, not only in the state of New York, but also in the state of California. Stephen Glass was this close to becoming a world-famous journalist, 
maybe even Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. But because of this controversy, as we just saw in this room, not too many people have heard of him. Nobody knows who he is. Because of this elaborate deception, he was discredited, disgraced, and more or less forgotten by history. Now I tell you that story because in our passage today, Jesus makes a very shocking claim about himself. And the immediate reaction of his audience is, that's not true, we don't believe you. And if those people had been correct, if Jesus had been lying, a very similar outcome could have happened to Jesus. He would have been discredited, blown off as just another one of those fake religious nuts. And it all could have ended right there. No Christianity, no New Testament, no Story City Church, no Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts. We would not still be talking about Jesus today because history would have forgotten about him. And yet, the claims that Jesus makes about himself are so astounding that if they actually are true, they not only tell us something about who he is, they tell us something about us, about the world, about science, about nature. If Jesus was lying, history should forget about him. But if he was telling the truth, we can't avoid that truth because it changes everything. And that's what we're going to see in John chapter 8 today. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig right in. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Father, your word is beautiful, it is exciting, and it is powerful. Father, I ask that today you would speak through me, that it would be your words, not mine. I pray that the focus would not be on me, but it would be on the truths of your word. Lord, I ask that you would open our hearts, all of our hearts, to hear from you, and that you would show us what you want us to understand and apply to our lives. We pray all these things in the name of your son. Amen. This summer, we are studying the I am statements of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven I am statements about his identity. All of them are messianic claims. They are all claims to be God in the flesh. Today in John 8, he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the one who shines light into the darkness and evil in the world. And just like his original audience, we could respond by saying, I don't think that's true. I don't believe that. Then we could just go home. And we could sleep in on Sundays. <laughs> Your spouse is like, this might be a really short sermon. We could just go home. But if these things actually are true, so it has serious implications on our lives, on our family's lives, on the world. John in his gospel wants to prove to you Jesus' identity. He wants you to be convinced without question who Jesus is. And so what he's getting at, especially in this section of scripture, his big idea is simply this. Jesus' claims about himself only matter if they're true. Now you might say, well obviously, I mean, Everything only matters if it's true. News articles, scientific studies, the gas gauge on my car. If it's not true, if it's not accurate, it's meaningless. It doesn't help me any. And yet there are people in our world today who do not believe these claims of Jesus, but would still say that he is a, a wise prophet or a good human teacher. So they would say, okay, he's lying about the being God thing, he's just a human. He's lying about forgiving sins and bringing eternal salvation. But other than that, 
there's still some good moral principles here. But friends, if Jesus was only human and was lying about being God, then he knowingly deceived hundreds of people in the first century into worshiping him and billions more over the next 2,000 years. Jesus would have manipulated and deceived a large chunk of the entire human race throughout history. That's not a good moral teacher. That is not someone that we should trust. So the reality is this idea that Jesus is only a human, only a good teacher, is actually not an option he left available to us. Either he really is who he said he was, or he's a lying, deceiving swindler, and history should forget about him. So Jesus' claims about himself only matter if they're true. And as we look through this passage today, first we're going to see the audacity of this claim. How extreme of a statement is this really? It sounds crazy at first. It's actually even crazier. Then we're going to consider the accuracy of this claim. How do we know if this is really true or not? And then lastly, what's our answer to this claim? If this is true, it impacts our lives whether we want it to or not. So how do we respond? First, let's look at the audacity of this claim. Read with me again in John 8, just verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. What does he mean by that? What do we know about the characteristics of light? At its most basic, just from a scientific perspective, Light illuminates. When it's light out, you can see things. When it's dark, you can't. Light also exposes and reveals. So when you walk into your child's dark bedroom that you think is clean, when you flip that light switch, the light exposes and reveals the way things really are. So whether it's in a dark bedroom or in our lives, light exposes and reveals reality. It shows us the way things truly are. And that may be different from what we were expecting. It may be different from what we were willing to admit. Light also gives life. Plant life on this planet requires light from the sun to survive. Human beings need vitamin D, which we get from the sun. It helps us absorb calcium so that we have strong bones. Helps with brain cell activity. But now Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. He says, I have come to bring life. I have come to expose and reveal the spiritual darkness. Keep in mind, this is before Jesus died and rose again, so all of his audience would not be believers. They're not apprentices or disciples of Jesus as we might define it today. The light that he is bringing is the light of salvation that he's going to bring. His audience needs to believe in him, place their faith in him in the first place. So Jesus is claiming to be the only thing that can fix the spiritual darkness in the world and in their own hearts. Now, if that's not true, if Jesus is lying, let me just say, eh, very arrogant. But it gets better. This sounds crazy, it's actually even crazier. One of the most important keys of interpreting the Bible is context. We, we can't just look at one verse of the Bible by itself and think that we know what's going on. And if we look at the context of this passage, back in chapter seven, we learn that this entire conversation is happening in one of the courtyards of the temple in Jerusalem. And it's happening on the last day of one of Israel's major annual festivals. 
This festival was called the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, what that particular festival is celebrating is the time in the Old Testament where God guided and protected the nation of Israel out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, and even wandering through the desert for 40 years. If you remember the story from the Old Testament, we see this in Exodus and also in Numbers. God's presence appeared before the people in a pillar of cloud during the day, and at night it turned into a giant torch. It was called a pillar of fire. This is how God guided the nation. So, cloud starts moving, okay. Whole nation starts following. Cloud stops, okay. We're gonna stop and set up camp. A Couple days later at night, pillar of fire starts moving. Okay, we're off again. This is how God guided them. It's also how he protected them. I don't know about you, but if I met someone who has a giant floating torch on their side, I'm not gonna mess with them. So this is how God guided and protected the nation. And so hundreds of years later, to commemorate the time when God guided them, particularly with this pillar of fire, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would set up a giant menorah, giant candle holder, several large torches. This thing was huge. It was a 70-foot menorah. They had to have 20-gallon containers of oil to keep these lamps burning. You couldn't miss it. I mean, you can't not see a 70-foot menorah. And so with that, unavoidably in the background, Jesus rolls up and says, I'm the light of the world. What, that? No, 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 no. I'm the light. That thing? That's just a symbol. I'm the reality. I'm what that is pointing you towards. I'm what that should be reminding you of. Jesus says, make no mistake, y'all. He looks at his people and he says, make no mistake. Your life is consumed with darkness. You are not in a good relationship with God. And I am the only thing in this universe that can fix it. This is an incredibly bold, gutsy claim by Jesus. And then the Pharisees, more or less the buzzkill of the New Testament, they say, you're testifying about yourself. Your testimony's not valid. They say, Jesus, we don't believe you. You haven't given us sufficient evidence to back up this claim. So we've looked at the absolute audacity of this statement. Now we need to consider the accuracy. Is this true? If so, how do we know that? Jesus gives three lines of evidence to back up this claim. His own eyewitness testimony, then he phones a friend, and then lastly, he puts his money where his mouth is. So first, his own eyewitness testimony. Read with me in verse 14. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. He's using the word judge there in the sense of determining a truth claim. How do you determine or prove whether something's true? Throughout history and different cultures, there's been different methods or customs for proving a claim in the legal system. Today, these aren't exact parallels, but help me out. We have things like a jury has to be convinced beyond what? A reasonable doubt. And you're innocent until proven guilty. In certain oppressive regimes, you might have been guilty until proven innocent throughout history. In ancient Israel, one of their customs was to prove a claim in the courts, you had to have at least two witnesses. 
We see this a couple places in the Old Testament. Here's one in Deuteronomy 19. One witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So the Pharisees say, Jesus, Jesus, eh, you can't be your own witness on the witness stand. But then Jesus says, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true. This is hilarious. Jesus says, okay, the real test to prove whether something's true or not is whether it's true or not. If a fact is true, if a statement is true, it's still true even if you only have one witness. Jesus says, I know where I'm from, I know where I'm going, I was there, I was an eyewitness. But you Pharisees, you don't know where I come from, you don't know where I'm going, so who are you to say whether this is true or not? This reminds me of what God said to Job. You remember when Job is like, hey, this isn't fair, why are you doing this? And I don't know why Job's a bratty teenager, it just made sense. Uh, and then God says, Job, who are you to ask? Were you there when I made the earth? Where were you when I made the oceans? Job, have you ever made an ocean? Because, you know, I've made like four or five of them. The, the, the Pharisees don't buy Jesus' self-witness, but Jesus says, if something is true, it's still true regardless of how many people witnessed it. He knew his mission. He knew where he was going. The Pharisees didn't, so they weren't in a place of authority to judge whether what he was saying was true or not. So first he gives his own eyewitness testimony, but then he phones a friend. Look at verse 16. Jesus says, I got somebody who'll vouch for me. And if I do judge, what you're saying is true, what I'm saying is true, if I judge, my judgment is true. Because it's not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. Deuteronomy 19. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. So he says, okay, your law says you gotta have two witnesses. Well, actually, I do have two witnesses. First, there's me, and then, secondly, there's God the Father. He also testifies about me. In fact, he's been testifying about me through the entire Old Testament. This is Jesus relating to us in our humanity. He says, hey, what I'm saying is true by God's standards, but you know what, in this case, it's actually true even by your standards. Lastly, Jesus puts his money where his mouth is. He says, I'm not just gonna talk, I'm gonna do something to prove that this is true. Context again comes into play here. This debate leads to this whole long exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees and some other Jews for the rest of chapter eight. If we take a sneak peek at chapter nine, we learn what happened next. And it's no coincidence that after claiming to be the light of the world, the very next thing that happens, the very next miracle Jesus performs is healing a blind man. This is very strategic on Jesus' part. He says, I have come to bring light to the spiritual darkness. And in the midst of that, he literally brings physical light to a man who had been born blind. The parallel is all of us have been spiritually blind since birth. This isn't something that happened to us. This is where we started. So this whole exchange and the miracle itself only serves to underscore the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. They weren't listening and they didn't get it. So Jesus claims to be the light of the world and then he backs that up with three evidences. His own eyewitness testimony, then he phones a friend, God the Father, and then lastly he puts his money where his mouth is by bringing light to a blind man. 
all the while the Pharisees remained in spiritual darkness. So how do we respond to this? What is our answer to Jesus' claim? We all have to decide for ourselves if we really think this is true or not, but if this is true, we have to follow the truth and go wherever that leads us. Because if it's true, it impacts our lives whether we want it to or not. We can choose not to follow, but it's still true either way. Have you ever had a situation that you wished wasn't true, but it was still true? There are a lot of things in my life that I wished weren't true, but my wishing doesn't change the fact that they're true. As a kid, I wanted to fly like Superman. Then I learned about gravity. My not liking it doesn't change the fact that gravity exists. Gravity impacts my life whether I want it to or not. My wife Tracy's major in college was health education. So in our home, occasionally, occasionally, I will try to teach Tracy about things like nutrition and exercise. And then Tracy will very graciously respond with reality. So imagine if I told Tracy that Skittles was a health food, and from here on out, all I wanted to eat was Skittles. Tracy would say, um, no, that's not healthy. You can eat Skittles, but you can't only eat Skittles. Now, I would respond, because I've done my research, but Tracy, Skittles has five fruit juicy flavors. I mean, fruit. And Tracy would say, um, Josh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's just flavored sugar. I don't think there's any actual fruit in Skittles. Friends, as hard as I try, Skittles is not part of a balanced diet. The fact that I don't like it doesn't change the fact that candy isn't healthy. My opinion has no influence over this. So if these claims of Jesus are true, they're true whether we want them to be or not. They impact our lives whether we want them to be or not. So how do we respond? For those of us who are not followers of Jesus, maybe we still are exploring, we still have questions about faith, that's a great place to be. The call for us would simply be to step into this light that Jesus offers. In verse 12, he says, anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. To be a follower of Jesus, there's no skills test, there's no moral standard that we have to hit, there's no entrance fee. Jesus just says, anyone who follows me. It's an open invitation. And that's really the beauty of the gospel, that God created the world to be perfect. He created humans to live in perfect harmony with him and with others. But when humans rebelled against God, that introduced darkness into the world. And now all of us are born into that darkness, what the Bible calls sin. God doesn't need us, he didn't have to do anything, but out of grace and love, he chose to come into the earth as the human, as a person, Jesus. He lived a perfect life and then died as a sacrifice, paying the penalty for all of our darkness. And then he brought with him, when he rose from the dead, he brought this offer of light to all of us. And all we have to do is is follow. Jesus says, it's an open invitation. Accept my free gift and follow me. Let me save you. 
And if that's you today, we would love to talk to you more about that, answer any questions you have. We don't want to tell you what to believe. We just want to come along and help you think this through and come to your own decision. Come find me afterwards, one of the people praying on the sides, anyone with a pink lanyard. We'd love to talk more, answer your questions. For those of us who have been apprenticing Jesus for a while, we have a call to embrace the light. Notice what he says again in verse 12. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. He says we'll never walk in the darkness, meaning the way we walk through our lives is no longer controlled by darkness. Darkness is no longer calling the shots. He doesn't say there is no darkness, that we'll never experience darkness again. All of us know from our own life experience that isn't true. Placing your faith in Jesus, believing in Christ, doesn't mean that life is gonna be perfect and happy all the time. Oftentimes, quite the opposite. But the darkness no longer defines us. The idea is that our identity has changed, and as a result, our relationship to the darkness has completely changed. Think about if you were walking through the woods late at night. It's completely dark out. You could easily trip on something because you can't see what's right in front of you. But now think about if you're holding out a lantern. Well, what does that do? Well, it lights up everything around you to a certain point. You can't see way off into the horizon like you could during the day. No, at some point, the light of that lantern falls off and it's dark again. But as you start walking forward, what happens? The light of the lantern starts pushing that darkness back and more and more of the path is lit up before you. That's the idea here. As apprentices of Jesus, we'll still see darkness in our lives. We will still encounter sin and evil in the world and in our own hearts. But Jesus is like that lantern that's continually shining light into that sin, into that evil. And as we continue to follow and obey, more and more of the path is lit up before us. What this means is if you are someone who struggles with perfectionism, or you're constantly clamoring for the admiration of others, in Christ, your ability to perform the approval of others is not what defines you. It is not the most important thing about you. It's not your identity. Rather, who you are is an apprentice of Jesus who is already fully approved, fully accepted in him, who also happens to be working on building your own self-confidence and developing a healthier response to the opinions of others. Some of us define ourselves by our relationships. We desire to be married, and we're still not. And then we're still not. And we're still not. When we got married, my wife and I were both in our late 30s. We have been where you are, and we were there for a very, very long time. But that relationship is not what makes you complete. That is not your identity. That is not what defines you. Who you are, first and foremost, is an apprentice of Jesus who is loved, who is forgiven, who is made complete in Christ. Tracy and I both lived very beautiful and fulfilling lives as singles for many, many years. You don't have to hold out for marriage to become the person that God intended you to be. You don't have to wait until you're married for God to use you to bring glory to himself. For those of us who are married, that relationship, as important as it is, is not what primarily defines you. 
God already loves us infinitely, just the way we are. He loves you as much as he possibly could. He doesn't love you more or less based on the quality of your marriage. No, who you are, first and foremost, is an apprentice of Christ, who is beloved, who is forgiven, who is the bride of Christ, who is also being refined by the process of the lifelong commitment between you and your spouse as you work together to grow closer to God, closer to each other, so that your marriage can bring glory to God before the world. Lastly, for the bad habits, the compulsions that all of us struggle with, this could be food, this could be technology use, could be pornography, it could be lying, bragging, jealousy. This is a very long list. All of us have some sort of habit or hang-up that we've been trying to kick for years and we just can't seem to get it under control. In Christ, those impulses are not your identity. That does not define you. Who you are, first and foremost, is an apprentice of Jesus who is loved, who is forgiven, who is made complete in Christ, who also happens to be struggling with bringing your desires under control, bringing those impulses back into a proper balance so that we are controlling our desires and cravings rather than them controlling us. Friends, the darkness is not the most important thing about us. It is not the most important or truest thing about us. The truest thing about us is our relationship with Christ. As apprentices of Jesus, the darkness is not our identity. The light of Jesus has so completely overpowered that darkness that while it at times may still be in our lives, that does not define us. We need to embrace this truth. We need to let this truth sink down deep into our souls so that we're not just saying it on Sundays, but we're actually living our lives from a place of knowing that this is true. Who we are, first and foremost, is apprentices of Jesus. We are loved, we are forgiven by God. That is our identity. We need to step into the light, we need to embrace the light. Lastly, for apprentices of Jesus, there is a call to reflect the light. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. But look at this, Matthew chapter five. You are the light of the world. I mean, a city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. Guys, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. So in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why? So that they may see your good works. And hopefully, give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus makes a very bold claim about himself, and he makes a very bold claim on our lives. As he continues to shine light into our darkness, we have the responsibility, the privilege, to share with others in our family, in our workplace, among our friends, in our online social networks, we have a call to reflect the light. Just as the moon doesn't have any light of its own but merely reflects the light of the sun, we have the responsibility and the privilege to reflect the light that we didn't have ourselves but that Christ has given to us. So don't put that light under a basket. Put it on a lampstand. Share the gospel. Live out the gospel in our words and actions. Invite others into our family, into our church, into our missional groups. Show those in your life the way to the light. 
Friends, Jesus' claims about himself only matter if they're true. And as we look at the audacity of this claim and consider the accuracy of that claim, we start to see our answer. We need to step into the light, we need to embrace the light, and we need to reflect the light. As we close today, we're going to observe communion together. And communion is really a celebration of everything that we're talking about today because the cross and the resurrection are the ultimate instance of Jesus putting his money where his mouth is. Jesus made some bold claims. I'm the bread of life. Hey, if you eat that today, you're just gonna be hungry again tomorrow. I am the only thing that will bring genuine and permanent satisfaction to the cravings of your soul. I'm the light of the world. I'm the only solution to the darkness in your life. These are bold claims. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose again three days later, defeating death, the people around him who understood what was going on said, oh my goodness, everything he said about himself was true. And he gave of his body and blood for us. And then he brought with him this offer of light, of reconciliation with God to all of us. And that's what we celebrate in communion. So I'm gonna pray for us, and then as we do every week, we invite you to line up along the outsides of the room, get the bread and the juice. There's also a gluten-free option if you prefer. And then come back to your seats and take communion either silently in prayer by yourself or with your family, with your missional group, even just those sitting around you. It's okay if you don't know them. You can still take communion with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you that you shine light into our darkness. Father, I pray that that truth would sink down deep down into our souls, that we would embrace that truth and that we would live our lives when we leave here today knowing that the truest thing about us, the most important thing about us is not anything that we have done, but it is simply that you are in our lives. That the most important thing about us is the fact that we have a relationship with you. Father, we thank you for these words of Jesus and we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus and we remember that now. The name of Christ. In the name of Christ, we pray. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.